is where we realize the sculpting of our Father's great design. The time you've been a friend to me, the time is now the enemy. I wish we didn't have to say goodbye. But I know the road he chose for me is not the road he chose for you. So as we chase these dreams, we're after. Pray for me, and I'll pray for you. Pray that we can keep the common ground. Won't you pray for me? I will pray for you. One day love will bring us back around. Painted on a tapestry, we see the way it has to be. Binds us to the time we realize memories can be our souvenirs. All right, we'll let our kids go for Kids World. Have fun, guys. Thank you to those leading that today. Bless you. Pray for me and I will pray for you. I think sometimes as, as Christians, maybe we forget, I don't know, that the greatest arsenal kind of in our Weaponry is prayer. It is our direct petition to the Lord. The scripture says that uh, the, the veil of the temple was torn open and we have been allowed access literally to the feet of God to take our prayers and petitions before him and to do that on behalf of one another, to do that on, on our own behalf and when we can't find the words to say it ourselves, 
The Bible teaches that the Spirit stands with God, interceding on our behalf with utterings and murmurings that we could not possibly express ourselves. With that in mind, I want to encourage you this morning. Um, can you pull that down? That's awfully hot, brother. Um, I encourage you this morning, pray for uh, Rhonda Jones, usually sitting back here. Frank is running our lights for us there at home today. I don't know if they're watching right now. They, they may be watching later. But, uh, you know, we prayed for her last week. Uh, she's come out of her treatment for uh, breast cancer here several weeks ago. And by all accounts, that direct intervention was very helpful. Uh, the reports were good. She's having trouble with neuropathy in her feet. Um, there is concern that the cancer has spread. And so uh, she was pursuing with her neurologist uh, treatment and, and diagnosis. And they were planning to have a, a spinal tap in June to see if there was any issue in her spine, uh, which was frustrating, as you can well imagine. Because, you know, we're, this was last week we were talking about this. That's a month away. Well, uh, she called and made a little noise, and they're going to see her on Tuesday. And so then they'll be waiting for the results of that. But, uh, you know, we're, of course, praying as we do for her, for Frank. We're praying for God's direct intervention in a miraculous way so that we can give God the glory for everything that he does. We are immensely grateful for the doctors and the medical care and uh, the treatment that is available uh, for different maladies that, that cost us in our lives. But uh, our greatest weapon against the enemy and disease, my friends, is the enemy. Uh, it's a byproduct of sin. It's a byproduct of the fall. Uh, I'm not saying that you get sick because you sin, but it's just contaminated humanity and creation. It's, 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 uh, it's something that's out there. Cancer didn't exist prior to the fall, right? So we pray against that and we ask in Jesus' name together this morning that she be touched and healed and that the Lord will be gracious in that and if that is his will and design, we will shout as we sang this morning from the mountaintops that he is good, amen? So I just want you to remember that, pray earnestly this week and, uh, and lift them up. I'm not going to talk for a long time this morning because I'm still having vocal trouble. That's why I didn't sing everything this morning, and I only sang in places that I was comfortable doing that so as not to hurt anything. Talking is actually worse than the singing. So <clears throat> I'm going to try and keep it kind of short this morning. But I, I want to remind you of a story that we find in John chapter 4. Christopher and I were talking yesterday. He was like, you should tell this story. You should tell that story. You should tell this story. I didn't pick any of the ones that we talked about, so I'm sorry. Um, Maybe when you get back, one of those will be on the docket. Um, but uh, this is a story that I love, and it was something that I wanted to, uh, to again, connect to the music that we sang this morning, about shouting it from the mountaintop, about uh, the breath in our lungs. It's his breath, right? So we shout out his praise. We, we glorify him. And I want us to, to, to think together this morning, are we doing that? We sing those words. But are we living that life? Are we actually putting action to those thoughts? Because there's that old saying that talk is what? Cheap, right? Uh, actions speak louder than words. The Bible says it this way. Faith without works is 
dead, right? As if it doesn't exist. And so if we're going to be people of the way, people of the followers of Christ, we, we must be those who express him through the community and the people around us. And uh, especially in, in modern times where everything is so contentious, everything is, you know, a battle line is drawn about anything you can imagine. Uh, you know, there's, there, there are websites, Twitter feeds, Facebook groups dedicated just to the idea of let's argue about something. Right? So they'll, and, and people love it. They're like, all right, somebody argue with me about this, and they'll post an idea, and then it's just, it just takes off. And it doesn't even matter if the people arguing care about the issue. That's not the point. It's just to argue, right? And I think that kind of defines particularly our Western culture right now, is this, this tendency to, to fight and to argue. And don't misread me. I don't, I'm not saying don't stand up for what's right. Absolutely, you should. But we are to be the instruments, the hands, the feet, the voice of the love of God in this world. And sometimes the love of God brings discipline, right? Sometimes the love of God brings chastisement. But the love of God also brings hope and encouragement and truth and peace. And so I want you to see this story with me. This, I just, man, I love this story. I'm not going to tell it to the depth that I normally tell this story because I want to get to a specific part. But it's in John chapter 4, and to just set the stage, Jesus and his disciples have been out uh, teaching and preaching. This comes right after uh, Jesus meets with uh, a religious leader in the dark of night, comes to him so that he won't be seen by his uh, peers in the religious community, and asks Jesus, how can I be born again? What must I do to be saved? And the answer Jesus said is you must be born again. You must be born first of, of the water, which is to mean you got to be a human. you gotta be, you got to live. But then you must also be born of the spirit. You must be uh, birthed through the spiritual process that God has designed to, to redeem you. Um, and it's a disappointing conversation for the young man. That's what the Bible says. He goes away disappointed because he's convinced that he's done everything just the right way that he should. And he doesn't really see an alternative for how that's going to turn out for him. He's, he's not happy with the message that Christ gives him. But out of that, we, we get verses like John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. Jesus speaks these words to that young man. And so he's, he's been traveling around. He's meeting with people. He's, uh, he's been in the temple. This is right after he's in the temple and flipped the tables and, and whipped some dudes for, for uh, taking advantage of the people who were required to give sacrifices. And so they thought, well, here's a fun thing. We'll set up in the temple and sell the things that they need for sacrifice. And even at an inflated price. So we'll make some money, but they'll be able to make their sacrifices. Jesus found that to be really distasteful and, uh, and made it known. And so then... He's traveling through the countryside with his disciples, and they arrive at a place, a town in Samaria. And the disciples go off to get some food. They go into the village to get some food. It's the middle of the day. The sun is beating down. You can imagine the Middle Eastern desert. It's hot. It's dusty. And up the walkway, the worn path from the village, comes a woman carrying a giant water bottle on her shoulder, as they would do in the custom of the day, to bring to the well 
So lower it down into the water, fill it with water, and take it back to whatever she needed to do that day with fresh water. But unlike the custom of the day, she's coming in the middle of the afternoon, the hottest point of the day. Because for some reason, we don't really know why. Well, we get some insight a little bit later as to maybe why. But the custom was for all of the women of the village to come together in the morning, in the cool of the morning, before the sun hits its peak. And of course, so they can do some things in the morning with the water that they would gather. And it would be a time of socializing, assisting one another, helping to carry those, those heavy pots of water back to the, to the village. But she wasn't part of that. She came at this different time of day. And as she does, she finds Jesus sitting there with his back up against the stones of the well where she will draw the water, taking a little, a little siesta in the afternoon heat, waiting for the, the guys to come back with the food. And they begin to talk with one another. And Jesus asks her to give him a drink. And she responds this way, John chapter 4, verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now that little parenthetical, that's added by the writer, right, for the context. This is, this is why she's asking the questions. We don't hang out with each other. We don't like each other as a people. We don't talk to one another. And what's more, you're a dude. I'm a woman. This is really inappropriate. Why are you talking to me? Her, her suspicion antenna goes up immediately about what's happening here. And then Jesus in verse 10 answered her and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And Jesus just takes this whole conversation and sends it in a direction that, that honestly, at first glance, we just stop there, makes no sense. She, she starts to pick at that, but the content of what he's saying here is, I've asked you for some, you know, H2O. You have responded to me that, why are we talking to each other? And Jesus, I think, loves this question. Because it opens the door for a gospel conversation right here where he says, you know, if you knew who you were talking to, you would have asked me a completely different question. And that question, you would have asked me for water. But the water that I would give you would be different than the H2O that's in the bottom of this well. But she doesn't catch it yet, because she doesn't know who he is. She doesn't know yet that this is a religious conversation. This is a spiritual conversation. Instead, she says, verse 11, the woman said, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? That word living in the Greek implies uh, Water that never ends, a spring bubbling forth. She was familiar with that word. It probably would have been an Aramaic for her. Jesus would have been speaking Aramaic. She would have understood the context of that word, that living water. It's different than when he first said, would you give me a drink of water? 
He modified it later by saying living water. And she would have understood that because sometimes wells go dry. But Jesus is implying that he knows somewhere to get some kind of water that never ends. And can you imagine for a woman who has found herself in whatever this circumstance is, that instead of coming out in the cool of the morning to gather her water, she's, she's walking out there in 100, 110 degree heat every afternoon with a heavy clay jar to lower it down all by herself, no assistance, raise it back up. It's going to weigh at least 20 or 30 pounds. Put that back on her shoulder, walk back to town. Don't you know she would love to know where the source of the water that never ends is? Is it close to my house would be my thought. She says, where do you get that living water? Verse 12, she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? They have this common ancestor even though they now believe some very different things. They worship in different ways, which comes up here later. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who was famous for what? Jacob's well, right? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. I mean, this has been around for a long time. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will give him, will get, I, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And this is where she starts to sense that the conversation is about something else. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she hasn't made the full connection yet. She still thinks we're talking about water that you're going you're gonna to drink with cup. And so then the story continues, and Jesus says to her, and I think this passage gets misapplied often, and unfortunately I've probably misapplied it myself in, in days past. But he says to her, go find your husband. Bring him out here. And I can just imagine that the countenance of her face immediately fell. Because she knew the circumstance of her life. She didn't know that Jesus knew the circumstance of her life. And so at first it might seem like an innocent question. But it makes total sense in the context of the culture, right? If he's going to continue this conversation with her, then maybe he wants the head of the house to be there. That would be her first thought. The problem is there is no head of the house right now. And that's what she says. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you are right in saying that you have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. So what you have said is true. It's unfortunate that in some uh, religious communities, this woman would be painted as some sort of a harlot, some sort of a loose woman, because she's had five husbands. That's probably highly unlikely. Because if she were... After the first husband, she would never have remarried because no one would marry her in that culture. She would have been a throwaway. She could have been remarried if her first husband died or 
she was put away in a legal divorce of which she had zero control or agency in. Women didn't get to choose divorce. They were the objects of divorce in this country. And somehow, through the course of her life, five different men had agreed to marry her for whatever, whatever reasons. Whether they loved her or not, we don't know. Whether it was utilitarian or not, we don't know. Whether it was to do her a kindness, we don't know. But somehow, five of those men had married her, and then she was no longer married. And now she was living with a man, don't know anything about that relationship, don't know if it was a kindness, don't know if it was a matter of convenience, don't know if it was a matter of this was the last place she could find where there was any shelter or, or something. But here she is with this one final man. And it's to her credit that uh, she continues this conversation with Jesus because the shame must have been enormous. And she probably expected this man, especially a Jew, who already probably thought Samaritans were the scum of the earth, to really kind of take delight in the fact that she had had such an unholy and an unrighteous circumstance in her life. In verse 19 then, after he says this, what you have said is true because you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not yours. The woman says, hey, uh, how did you know that? She says, I perceive that you're a prophet because there's no other way you could have known that. We don't know each other. We've never met each other. You don't hang out in this city because you're a Jew and we're Samaritans, so it's not like you've heard of me. I'm not famous. Just, just the lady who had five husbands and goes to the well all by herself in the middle of the afternoon. And so after she says that I perceive that you're a prophet, she asks a question about where he worships. Because this was the big divide between the Jews and the Samaritans. They came out of the same lineages back in the ancient days. But they worshipped God on one mountain and the Jews worshipped God. They thought the seat of God was another mountain and this was a huge division between them. There were other differences but this was the major faction between them. And she, she kind of, I don't know if she's trying to change the course of the conversation or if she really has been thinking about this. I don't know. We just have the text here. She asks the question, and Jesus doesn't really respond in the way that she would expect. He doesn't give her a, an either-or answer and say, well, you guys are wrong and we're right. He says, you know what? The day's coming when it's really not going to matter which mountain you're standing on. In fact, the day is here. What matters is do you truly love and worship God? Because God is looking for worshipers, and he only wants worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. Uh, throwing off all the trappings of of. Uh, legalistic religion and laws that didn't that weren't made by God but laws made by man to keep people in control He's, all that stuff doesn't matter that's not who God's looking for and he says it this way in verse 22 he says you worship what you do not know we worship what we know for salvation is coming from the Jews now he's speaking about the Messiah and she's going to know this story it's not this is not news to her because the Jews have held it over the Samaritans' heads for generations, 
you guys are nothing. The Messiah is going to come from us. That's what the prophecy says. And so he reiterates it. He says, salvation is coming from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit. And then Jesus says, well, the woman says to him, I believe the Messiah is coming. Which is an enormous statement for the Samaritan woman to make. Somewhere in the course of that life that she's lived where she's been rejected or abandoned or brokenhearted so many times, where she's living in a community that she could not possibly escape, but which treats her as an outcast and an outsider because she's unwelcome to come with the rest of the women of the village in the, in the cool of the morning to gather her water, and no one comes to help her. Somewhere in the midst of that, she has heard the stories of hope of a Messiah, and she says, I'm going to cling to that hope. I'm going to believe that. I believe there's a Messiah that's coming. And when he comes, he's going to tell us all the truth. And we won't have to wonder which mountain we're supposed to worship from anymore. And I just imagine that as Jesus is sitting there in the dust looking at her, perhaps a, a little smirk runs across his face. As he looks at her and he says, I am the the one that you are speaking to, that's me. And just then, he says, that the disciples came back, and the first thing they said is, why is Jesus talking to that Samaritan woman? Because they're a bunch of Jews. And the next immediate thing that happened, so I'll, I'll read this, I don't have this, I didn't give this to you. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Verse 28, the very next thing. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town. The other guys show up. The last thing Jesus said is, I hear what you believe. You said there's a Messiah coming soon. I'm the one. And that was enough of a witness from Jesus' mouth for her to believe that he was the one. Because the next thing she did is, these guys show up, she's not even thinking about them. She leaves the water jar, the, the very purpose she came to get the water out of the well, she leaves it and races back to the town. And why did she do that? She went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. And meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said, I don't need this food. I have food that you don't, know nothing, you don't know anything about. My food is to do the will of the Father. And then down in verse 39, after he has this conversation with the disciples, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because, why? Of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days, and many more believed because of his word. 
They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard it ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. It's, it's remarkable to me that this woman, who would have had no social standing within her own community, who would have assuredly been an outcast among her own people and even probably her family, that she comes and encounters Jesus. There's not a lot of flowery conversation here. It's not a deep dive into theology, although it is definitely theology, right? Jesus says to her, I am the Messiah. What you're seeking, which wasn't, look, she came to get water because she needed water for the day, but Jesus tapped into this thing of, about humanity, which is, that's really not, that was for sustenance. But what she was really seeking was something to fill the void in her life that hadn't been filled by five previous men and hadn't been filled by the man she was living with now wasn't being filled by her community or her beliefs because she asked, are we even believing the right thing or are you believing the right thing? Because I don't know. I'm, I'm confused. But I have hope that there's a Messiah. And when Jesus revealed himself, her immediate reaction wasn't even to stand there and rejoice and go, oh, live, ah, living water. I get it. Right? That was clever. That was smart. See what you did there, Jesus. That was pretty cool. No, she beats feet back to the village, to the people who have marginalized her, and begins to tell them about the greatest thing that's ever happened to her. He says, you got to come meet this guy. I think he's the Messiah. And so I, I share that story with you. And we're going to take just a couple of minutes because about to... We've got about 10 minutes left, 15 minutes left. One, to remind us that we are the ambassadors of Jesus here now. He's still calling people. He's still saving people. He's still reaching out to people. Often he allows us to be the voice through which he does that, the kindness through which he does that, the correction through which he does that. Always in love. Uh, Jesus didn't condemn her because of the wreck of her life. He offered her something better. And then she was free to choose that. Or not. Are we being diligent in our lives when the opportunity arises to share? You know, I know something that would satisfy this part of your life that you're reaching for, but you've been reaching for all the wrong things. I know that a lot of things in our lives have been elevated to the place where we practically worship him, but there's one who's truly worthy of worship. I know that you, as a, as a person, you really desire truth and justice and what is right. There's really only one place that that comes from. Can I share that with you and how that's influenced and impacted my life? How God moved in me, how Jesus rescued me. Can I, can I share that with you? And then see where it goes. Probably later this summer we'll have a series that we're going to do 
on uh, personal evangelism. We'll use some resources that we'll put in your hands that are, that are easy to use to have conversations because I know sometimes it can be intimidating. And, and I get it. I do believe that every one of us, God equips each of us to share the gospel in a way that we can share the gospel. It will not look the same for everyone. I've shared with you stories before about a couple of people I've known who we could walk into a supermarket and in 30 seconds they're sharing the gospel with somebody they've never met. I, that's not me. I don't have that gift, but I know people who do. Um, some of us are much more relational. Some of us, it works through... Uh, hobbies or activities or just being open to the appointments that God is willing to make for us and then be faithful to them to share what God has done in our lives like this woman here because I really believe if, if we've been saved I think it was a uh, Penn Gillette from Penn and Teller we've talked about him before talked about a guy that gave him a gift of a Bible after show Penn Gillette is an avowed atheist just thinks it's all garbage all gobbledygook but he was moved by this guy because he could tell that the man really cared about him as a person. And he said, you know, I, I, if you really believe this thing about salvation and about eternal life and about eternal judgment, how much do you have to not care about people to, not, to just never tell them? That's a powerful indictment of us living our lives for Christ, not only with Christ. So in these last few moments, um, Sean, maybe you can help me. Uh, Hub, we're going to use mic number six. It'll be our roving microphone. I'm just going to give an opportunity here. Very brief. Uh, and when I mean brief, I mean you. Be brief. <laughs> if you just would like to share any testimony about how God has done something in your life or what your faith means to you, anything like that this morning. We're just going to take a few moments, and then the worship team will come back, and we'll close with a song today. And if you'd like to participate, raise your hand, and Sean will come and, and find you. seeking in her life, even though she may not have put that in those kind of words until she met Jesus. Kind of symbolized my life in a lot of ways uh, as I was younger. Up until my uh, mid-twenties, I was questioning and seeking. I was not a believer, uh, though I'd been raised in a, a nominally Christian uh, family. I gave that up as a teenager and uh, uh, thought that was a bunch of weak-minded uh, people going to church and everything. So I, I, I knew there was something that I needed in my life, and I searched in a lot of strange and unhealthy places, and, uh, occultism, um, uh, partying, <laughs> as many of us did in our youth, and, and things like that, and I was always unsatisfied, never found that answer until I met a wonderful woman who was a Christian. And she said, if you want to know me, you at least have to accompany me to church and, and listen to what, what's going on. And because of Jan, uh, 
I listened, and I said, I don't know the answers yet, but this sounds like a lot of people feel like they do, and it's bringing good things in their lives. So I said, okay, now I'll profess my, my faith in Jesus, and I did. And as a baby Christian, I suddenly realized I know everything about being a Christian, and I was so wrong. And it's taken so many years of uh, studying and reading the Bible and finding out that I know still so little about it. But I am a believer, and I thank God for, for my wife, who's, who's passed on now. And uh, I have faith that I will join her sometime soon because um, I'm, I'm an elder of the church, and I, I, to me that means I'm one of the oldest people here in the church. <laughs> Not necessarily one of the most uh, devout or anything like that, but uh, uh, we all just have a, a brief span of time on this world. Find out what means the most to you. Grab a hold of it and pursue it. time I've ever spoken on the, on the uh, VA system, so, uh, you know, I just, uh, I felt moved to tell you guys a little bit about myself, uh, you know, I spent uh, uh, 20 years in the Army, uh, uh, you know, I've seen a few things, and uh, what I can say is, you know, over the 20 years that I've spent in the Army, and and the time I went overseas, I did not have God in my life. Uh, in fact, I, I at times I felt I was an atheist, agnostic, whatever you want to call it. I just didn't find the true source at all. And um, you know, at times I thought, well, let me give some credit to the universe whenever I had luck. But um, you know, in retrospect, I, I I know that Christ is with me. I know that. He saw me through here. He saw me through the war um, because, you know, he has a mission for me. Uh, he has a mission for all of us. And um, it's just a matter of finding that mission. And, and I did uh, reconnect with a wonderful woman that um, insisted that I come with her. And this was the first church that I came to. And honestly, it was amazing. Um, reckless love. I couldn't, under, I couldn't believe that somebody could love me that much, um, especially when I didn't love myself. So, um, yeah, still working on it, still trying to find my place, uh, mission with God. And uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I wanted to say this church was the first one that I ever felt at home in. So, thank you all.
didn't grow up in the church, I think until the age of 18, I went to church once as a little person. And then after I graduated high school, I met this young lady and uh, we became semi-serious and then ultimately got married briefly. But she got me going to church and then uh, I came home from work one day and she was gone, fiddling on the guitar. And I uh, was, was sort of lost and uh, there was this huge hole in my life and I was mad at God for a long time. I couldn't understand. Finally, thanks to a good friend, that fleeting thought of suicide never became serious. He would come by and say, come on, John, let's go to the park. Let's go to the movies. Let's go to Park Heights. Thank God for him. Years go by, I go into the service. It's been quite a few years there. Decide I didn't want to go back to the land of sand again, so I got out and went to school for a few years. And I never really planned to get married again. But a co-worker introduced me to a woman uh, overseas. <laughs> and uh, we corresponded and met every week for a year. And we decided to get married. <clears throat> We've been married 19 years now. see at times God was there and I didn't see him. And I can see, I remember telling a friend, I says, because <laughs> I'd always wanted to have a lot of kids. And, you know, <laughs> at the age of 44, it's not really time to start having a lot of kids. <laughs> and I remember telling that friend, I says, I don't care if I have to marry someone overseas. And then that's what happened. I think God heard my words. <laughs> But uh, anyways, I thank God for the Holy Spirit and for him working in my life the way he has. 